reasons. So let's take a look today at some of the reasons why divorce was so minimum in the early Islamic community. Number one is because the Prophet's mission was predicated on building the model Islamic community, which provided the blueprint upon which later generations or latter generations would be able to navigate their challenges. So if the first Islamic community was saturated with divorce, you know, separation, fragmented families, and that was supposed to be the blueprint for the latter generation of the Muslim communities, then what would we have to build upon? We would have nothing but dysfunction to build upon. So there was, you know, there was an extra push because the Prophet's community was supposed to be the model Islamic community, there was an additional push to be righteous and to maintain you know, a, a strong family unit, strong family structure, because that would contribute to a strong community. All right. So this responsibility provided families during that time with a common struggle, operative phrase, common struggle. So families in the early Islamic community during the time of the Prophet and after, right? Families had a common struggle, and the common struggle was to make sure that they laid a solid foundation for the latter generation of the Muslims that were to come. Knowing that the Muslims that were going to come later on were not going to have a prophet, there was not going to be an, another prophet, were not going to receive another book. The only thing that they would have is the, the, the legacy that the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and the Atba'a Tabi'in left behind. That's all they would have. And that's all that we have today. We don't, there's no prophet amongst us. There is no prophet. We don't have any new legislation from divine legislation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All we have is the legacy that was left behind by the first, second, and third generation of the Muslim community. That's all we have. And we're building our entire communities based upon the legacy that these communities, these early generation of the Muslim community that they left behind. So they worked diligently to make sure that they gave an adequate representation of Islam so that the next generation would have something to build upon. And that speaks volumes for where we are right now. What are we leaving behind? It's almost as if we only concentrate on the current. We concentrate on right now. We concentrate on what is right now. Not thinking about what the our children, our great-grandchildren, what do they have to build upon? What are we leaving behind for our children and our great-great-grandchildren to build upon? Not much. Not much. And this is more so for the African-American Muslim community. Go to the inner cities of any you know, state, go to the inner cities, the, the ghettos, the inner cities of any state, and you will find a dilapidated building, you will find, you know, a rundown storefront, you know, and these are what we consider masjids, masajid, for African-American converts, African-American Muslims, for the most part. And there is no structure, most of these buildings are rented buildings, most of these properties are rented properties, and if we do own them, then, you know, there's so much debt, you know, that is owed on the property, you know. And then, of course, where are the Islamic libraries? 
Islamic libraries replete with, you know, texts in Arabic and in English. Where are the, you know, institutions, the Tahfid al-Quran, students of knowledge that are, you know, producing material of their own that is relative to the environments that they live in and the people that they serve. These are, this is the legacy that we are leaving behind for three, four, five generations from now. But our concern is right now. Our concern is not a hundred years from now, 70 years from now, when we are dead and gone and our, our grandchildren are adults coming into adulthood. What are we leaving behind? A foundation that we are leaving behind for them. This was the concern of the Prophet ﷺ and his community, which was why, you know, issues like divorce, social issues like divorce was not as it was not prevalent amongst them as it is amongst us today. This responsibility provided families during that time with a common struggle. We don't have a common struggle. We have individual struggles. And that's the that's the difference between the Sahaba and the early generations of Islam versus our current society. Our current communities, we concentrate on our own individual struggles, whether that is financial, whether that is mental or emotional, familial, educational, it doesn't matter. Whatever struggle we have as an individual, that takes precedence and overshadows every other struggle because nothing else is important to us as a family or as a community except our own individual struggle. Whereas the Sahaba, they had a collective struggle. And that was to leave behind a legacy that, few, that you know, latter generations of the Muslim community would be able to build upon. If you guys understand me, if you guys follow me. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, so this responsibility provided families during that time with a common struggle which preoccupied them from the more trivial matters of married life that typically consume couples today. Married couples today become consumed with trivial issues. My rights, his rights, you know, trivial issues in the deen. And we allow that to consume us to the point where we end up in divorce. Meanwhile, you know, we haven't, you know, there's no collective struggle. There is no collective struggle, all right? So we are preoccupied with the trivial matters of married life and they consume us rather than becoming preoccupied with a common goal, a common struggle. On the other hand, many families today within the larger framework of the Islamic community don't have a common focus, a common struggle that unites them, nor do they recognize a common enemy. They don't recognize a common enemy. There's no common struggle, there's no common focus, and there's no common enemy. There is individual focus, there's individual struggle, and there is uh, individual enemies. I don't like this brother, I don't like that sister, I don't like that masjid, I don't like that community. That's individual. That's you personally. We're not looking at the community as a whole. And perhaps we're just a microcosm of the environments that we live in. You know, it's a very individualistic society that we live in. And as Muslim, American Muslims, you know, we tend to become very individualistic as well. Wow. Our struggles is about our own personal individual struggle. 
our focus is about our own individual focus. That, that's what it's about. Me as an individual. What I want, what I'm desiring, where I'm going. It's not us as a collective. All right? So on the other hand, uh, many families today within the larger framework of the Islamic community uh, don't have a common focus, a common struggle that unites them, nor do they recognize a common enemy other than themselves. Who is determined to pick them off? Uh, and uh, they don't recognize uh, a common enemy other than themselves who, will, who is determined to pick them off one by one until the entire family unit is divided. Shaitan realizes the power of divide and conquer and the strength of unity in numbers. Shaitan recognizes that. Shaitan knows the power that is in, you know, divide and conquer. The concept of divide and conquer. Because that's exactly what he does. He separates you from your friend, you from your companion, you from your spouse, you from your children. Salam alaikum, Akhi. Salam alaikum. That's $25. Those are not free. No, they're not. I'm glad you, you know. Sound like Okay. That one is 25, the other one is uh, 15. Okay, so Shaitan realizes the power that is in divide and conquer and the strength that is in unity right the prophet sallallahu said about this demonic tactic the prophet sallallahu he said 15 okay the prophet sallallahu he said stick to the congregation stick to the jama'ah for indeed the wolf eats the sheep that strays on its own that's divide and conquer no, it's okay. It's okay. Likewise, likewise. Alhamdulillah. Can you ask one of the sisters downstairs if she has change? I sure will. Okay. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said that stick to the jama'ah. Alaykum bil jama'ah. For in the dip, yakuru min al ghanam al qasia. The Prophet ﷺ said, stick to the congregation, stick to the jama'ah. Huh? What about it? That was the book. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, the change for the ten. Okay. Okay. So the Prophet ﷺ said, stick to the jama'ah. Alaykum bil jama'ah. Stick to the congregation. For in the dip. Stick to the congregation, stick to the community, stick to the jama'ah, for indeed the shaitan gets or the wolf gets the lone sheep. The sheep that strays by itself, the shaitan, the, the wolf is there to get it. So this was metaphorical for the fact of shaitan, for the fact that shaitan divides and conquers. He separates you from your spouse. And then before you know it, that same sister, off comes the hijab, off comes the kimar, and she's no longer practicing Muslim. 
or the brother same thing he you know divorces his wife and then he goes down this long dark path of you know fornication communicating with women in a haram fashion this is divide and conquer because when you guys were together understand the power that is in a man and a woman being together and all of what we see today of the you know propagation of homosexuality and lesbianism and you know queer and all of these other you know concepts these concepts are demonic in nature because they upset the natural order of man and woman and the power that lies in between a man and a woman being together Understand how powerful it is for a husband and a wife, a man and a woman to unite. The power that is in that. Number one, they have the power to produce life by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thank you. Why come sit down? They have the power to produce life. When a man and a woman, you know, unite in, in, in the bond of marriage, they have the power by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to produce life. That within itself is powerful. A woman and a woman cannot produce life and a man and a man cannot produce life. The only thing that can produce life by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the unification of a man and a woman. Man and a woman together, they produce life. That is how powerful that relationship is. Not only do they produce physical life, but look at a woman who is happily married, a man that is happily married. That begin, that power, that energy transcends their relationship and begins to, you know, manifest itself in other relationships, in work relationships. Look at how a man comes to work when he is happy at home. He comes to work and he does his job efficiently. He interacts with everybody in a healthy way. Same thing with a woman. When a woman is happy in her relationship, right? Look at the power that it produces beyond the home. She goes to work, she's happy. She interacts with people like a person who is happy and enjoying life, right? It doesn't matter what type of employment they have. It doesn't matter what type of job they have. But that is the power of two people being together and it trend, that energy transcending just their normal relationship. Shaitan understands that power. Shaitan understands that power. So he does everything that he can to disrupt that power. Create separation, create dysfunction, create discord between you know, the spouses in the home. Shaitan understands that. And once he separates you, divide and conquer. He conquers you. Look at children when they are in a happy home. Happy mother, happy father. Look at the type of children we produce. That's how powerful you know, these relationships are. We don't recognize that. We don't understand that. We look at marriage. We look at relationships as... You know, this domain where I can get all of my personal needs met. My sexual needs, my financial needs, my emotional needs. I can get all of my needs met in this domain, in this institution that we call marriage. Because we're so selfish. And that's the only way that we, that's the way that we view marriage. Marriage is just a domain where we get our needs met. That's it. For no other reason. There's, there's nothing else that we derive from that. 
because we don't understand the power that is in the relationship between a man and a woman. Powerful. And Shaitan knows that. So he does everything in his power to disrupt that. And if families understood that, then they would do more to try to reconcile whatever their petty, trivial issues are because they look at, they're looking at the bigger picture. Looking at the bigger picture. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala identifies shaitan in the Quran as the chief enemy of man and his wife. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So we said, O Adam, indeed this one, shaitan, is an enemy to you and your wife. So do not let him get you removed from paradise so you will suffer. Consequently, when the husband and wife are not aware of the trickery of shaitan, they begin to turn on one another. They begin to turn on one another, whereby viewing each other as the enemy. And their marriage as the battleground for spousal warfare. And in some instances, using their children as weapons. Using the children as weapons. And in the end, communities are left grappling with astronomical rates of divorce, while the real enemy, Shaitan, withdraws and then moves on to the next couple or the next family. You see how that works? See how that process works? Right? Husband and wife begin to look at each other as the enemies. They begin to see their marriage as the battleground for spousal warfare. And in some instances, they begin to use their own children as, you know, pawns, as ammunition, as weapons against one another. Allah Musta'an. The Prophet ﷺ warned us that this is Shaitan's modus operandi. When he said, alayhi salatu wasalam, Iblis. Shaitan places his throne upon water and then he sends out detachments to create dissension amongst the people. The closest of the shayateen to Shaitan are those who are most notorious in creating dissension and separation between the children of Adam. One of the shayateen comes to Shaitan and he says, I did such and such. And Shaitan says, you have done nothing. You haven't done anything. Then another comes and he says, I did not spare so-and-so until I separated him from his wife. And then Shaitan embraces him saying, Ni'mata'ant, you have done well. You have done well. So it's important for us to, as I talked about in the khutbah, to know our enemy and to know ourselves. So that was just one. I mentioned about four or five of the reasons why divorce was not prevalent amongst the early generation and why it is so prevalent amongst us. Now I'm going to skip to page number 30. And I want to talk about why divorce is so prevalent amongst us today. Why? Some of the more specific reasons why? that has led to the rise in divorce rates amongst American Muslims are number one. Number one, and I probably won't go past number one. It's just, it's just way too much information. Number one is the culture and prevalence of NPD. Remember those letters. N-P-D. N-P-D. Narcissistic personality disorder. 
narcissistic personality disorder. And this is the culture that we live in. The culture and prevalence of narcissistic personality disorders that celebrates irresponsibility and liberation from the institution of marriage. A narcissistic personality disorder, concentrate, the person concentrates solely on their needs and could totally care less and dismiss the needs of others. So the culture and prevalence of narcissistic personality disorders that celebrates irresponsibility and liberation from the institution of marriage. We live in a time where brothers and sisters search for loopholes within the institution of marriage in the form of trivial nitpicking that will allow them to be emotionally irresponsible or absent and invest very little of themselves in the relationship. So let's talk about that for a second. We live in an environment where many brothers and sisters Wait, you have to stop, Mama. Here, drink your water. We live in an environment where many brothers and sisters, from the onset of the marriage, or even before they get married, they look for loopholes, loopholes, within the institution of marriage in the form of trivial nitpicking that will allow them or justify them to be emotionally unavailable or irresponsible and invest very little of themselves in the marriage. We do that even before we go into the marriage. We look for reasons to not invest emotionally in the institution of marriage so that'll justify us being irresponsible, justify some of the actions that we do, some of the horrible interactions that go on between brothers and sisters within the marriage. And you say to yourself, why in the world did you even get married? If this was the way that you were going to conduct yourself, why even get married? So we tend to stand in our spaces of individuality, despite how unhealthy they are, unwilling to change, reluctant to do the work that is necessary for us to have a healthy relational experience with one another, and expect our spouses to meet us where we are. I'm not going to change. I am who I am. This is who he married. This is who she married. I don't care. I'm not changing myself for nobody. Then why are you even getting married? If you are not willing to, you know, make some compromises, marriage is all, any relationship, not just marriage, any relationship is about compromise. Any relationship. It doesn't matter if it's a friendship. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, kinship. Any relationship requires some level, some form of compromise. No one goes into a relationship with someone, you know, um, believing that, you know, or, or should no one should go into a relationship with anyone, believing that they're not going to have to at some point make some compromises. That's not even rational thinking. That is irrational thinking, but this is what we do, right? So we tend to stand in our spaces of individuality. I, this is who I am, and I'm not changing myself for anyone. That's who I am. That's who you marry. It's like, okay, that's who I married, but that's who you were when you were single. That's who you were before I married you. Once you get married, 
you are now in a zone, you're in a space, an intimate space with someone else. And if you want that space to be healthy, you have to be willing to make some compromises on both ends. But this whole idea of standing in your space of individuality, this is who I am. I'm not going to change myself for anybody. That's unrealistic. How in the world do you ever expect to have a healthy relationship with anybody with that type of mentality? That's a narcissistic personality disorder. So we tend to stand in our spaces of individual individuality, uh, despite how unhealthy they are. <laughs> unwilling to change. Unwilling to change. Reluctant to do the work that is necessary for us to have a healthy relational experience with one another and expect the other person to meet us where we are. In addition, we issue ultimatums that place us in positions of power, all the while dismissing the sacrifices that are necessary for any relationship to be fruitful. We issue ultimatums, right? Just to put us in a position of power. An ultimatum is the ultimate role reversal. You issue an ultimatum when you reach a point where you feel like I am powerless. There's nothing I can do to change this person. So I'm going to issue an ultimatum. Either you change, either you do this, or I'm leaving. Either you do that, or you're divorced. That puts you back in a power position. It's the ultimate role reversal. Consequently, we've become a microcosm of the larger environment in which we live. An environment that is morally and spiritually decaying as each day passes. Television shows that reinforce social irresponsibility, such as The Maury Show. Some of you guys still watch that show. Wallah I, I can say, alhamdulillah, I've never watched that show. Never watched one episode. I couldn't tell you anything of, and even knowing about this show, I had to go back and do some research about it myself. But I remember in prison, brothers used to sit in the day room and watch episode after episode after episode of this show which is in in essence exploitation of african americans in general in specific and people in general because it wasn't only african americans on there it's exploitation of people not to mention exploitation of african americans black exploitation at its best just not being done by black people the maury show with its paternity test segments uh, that absolve men of their paternal duties of not being the father by not being the father, but does nothing to address or lessen the prevalence of promiscuity. Divorce parties, which are now a popular trend in American culture. In American culture today, people who uh, get divorced, they have what's called divorce parties. Yeah. Divorce parties is now a popular trend within the fabric of American culture where couples celebrate, sometimes together, their independence from one another and the termination of a union that was once the glue that kept families and communities together. So now we're celebrating the fact that we're divorced. We're now having divorce parties. That's how low we've sunken as American people. As Americans, I, I'm, I, I pray that this does not become a trend amongst the Muslims. I don't know. I don't know this to be a trend amongst Muslims today. 
I've never heard of Muslims having divorce parties. But it is a very popular trend in American culture. Unfortunately, this phenomenon has made divorce just as appealing, if not more, than the process of marriage itself. It's almost like we look forward to getting divorced just as much, if not more, as we look forward to getting married. Just like you have one couple that are looking forward to their marriage, you have some people in their marriages that are waiting for the opportunity, waiting for the moment when they can separate themselves from this person. The narcissistic identity is fueled by the notion of complete independence from any and all forms of responsibility and by default challenges the institution of marriage, a social construct that involves commitment and accountability, something that a narcissist cannot fathom, much less exercise. A narcissist cannot even fathom being you know, emotionally or responsible to somebody else because a narcissist only concentrates on his or her needs. It's all about them. The conversation is about them. The emotional needs in the relationship is about them. Everything revolves around their needs. Which that mentality within itself challenges the institution of marriage because marriage is about what you give to the other person, not what you are receiving from the other person. You follow me? Marriage is not about what you are receiving from the other person. It's about what you are giving to the other person. All of the hadith that mention the Sahaba, excuse me. All of the hadith that mention the Sahaba, coming to the Prophet to ask him about the rights of the marriage, they all mention the Sahaba asking the Prophet about the rights of the other person. What is the rights? One of the Sahaba, the men, came to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, ma haqqo zawjati ahdina alina. O Messenger of Allah, what is the right of, of one of our wives over him? He didn't ask about his rights. He asked about the rights that he has to give the woman in the relationship. Because marriage is not, a, not about what you are receiving from the other person. It's about what you are giving to the other person. So the Sahaba were more concerned about what they had to give to someone rather than what they were receiving from someone. So the narcissistic identity is fueled by the notion of complete independence from any and all forms of responsibility. I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to be emotionally responsible for somebody else. I don't want to be financially responsible for somebody else. Don't you got your own money? You make your own money, right? We don't want to be responsible for anybody else but ourselves, right? And by default, this mentality challenges the institution of marriage, a social construct that involves commitment and accountability, something that a narcissist cannot even fathom, much less exercise himself or herself. So that is one of the reasons why divorce is prevalent amongst us. I'm going to skip to number four for another reason why um, divorce is prevalent amongst us. Number four is the lack of social support for our marriages. In the Islamic community, we don't have social support for our marriages. 
whether family members or genuine friends who are willing to exhaust all of their efforts to see the couples remain together. Unfortunately, many of us go into relationships without considering all of the variables that will ensure a healthy and longevous marriage. When we marry into a Muslim family that is replete with siblings who are also in healthy, successful marriages, the couple is much uh, is more likely to stay in the relationship because there is no premise of divorce in the family unit. When brothers and sisters marry into families, you're marrying a sister, she has a mother and a father who are married, she has sisters that are married, she has a brother who's married. When you marry into a family like that, you're more likely to stay and work your relationship out because there is no premise of divorce in that family unit. Everybody in the family is happily married. They have their problems, they have their issues, but there is no premise of divorce in that family unit. So in, when you marry into a family like that, you're more, you're more likely to work your problems out, work your issues out because you see that divorce is not something that is prevalent in this particular family unit. And if I divorce this woman or if this woman asks for a divorce, it's going to be frowned upon. There's going to be an embarrassment that is associated with that. So couples are more likely to work their issues out. But when we have families that are broken, you know, by divorce, you know, families that are broken by divorce, families that are broken by separation, then it be it's a premise there. So it's like, okay, well, the sister, the, her sister has been divorced. Her brother is working on his third or fourth marriage. The mom is divorced from the father. So it's like divorce is already, you know, a factor in that family unit. So you're less likely to stay and work the situation out. You may have some brothers that'll say, I'm going to stay because I don't want my wife to end up like that. But they are a minority. Those situations are a minority. So a lack of support, social support, whether family members or genuine friends who are willing to see the marriage all the way through. When family members are involved. You giving your lecture? Hmm? When family members are involved, uh, then there is a sense of familial responsibility for the couple to work through their issues rather than run away from them. When the family members are involved in the marriage, all right, there's a family responsibility. Families start to feel like they are responsible to make sure that this marriage works. There's a sense of responsibility that the family has. When Abu Bakr anhu sought permission to enter the Prophet's home and found his daughter Aisha, raising her voice over the Prophet Sallallahu voice, voice, he was astonished and infuriated. Abu Bakr who one day was walking by the Prophet's house and he could overhear his daughter shouting at her husband. He could overhear Aisha shouting at the Prophet Sallallahu and he became infuriated. This is my daughter raising her voice at her husband. And so he asked the Prophet ﷺ for permission to enter. He moved closer to Aisha in order to grab her physically. But the Prophet ﷺ intervened, saying, saving her from Abu Bakr's grip. So Abu Bakr was going to grab Aisha, and the Prophet ﷺ jumped in between them, saving his wife. 
Abu Bakr, you know, resorted to verbally reprimanding her, saying, are you raising your voice over the voice of the Messenger of Allah? Abu Bakr had a sense of responsibility to preserve his daughter's marriage, which caused him to intervene. Some parents just sit back and watch the marriage dissolve right in front of them. Simply because they didn't want her to be married to him anyway. Or they didn't want their son being married to this woman anyway. So when they see that the couple is having problems in their marriage, they sit back, sakitun, say, say absolutely nothing because they actually want the marriage to dissolve. Sad, man. This is the type of environment that we live in. Because the mother didn't want her daughter to be married to this brother anyway. The mother didn't want this brother to be married to her daughter anyway. So she helps to sabotage the situation by not intervening when she had the ability to do so. Likewise with the brother. The brother may be close to his mother. And in a lot of the foreign communities, you find a lot of the brothers, you know, their relationship with their mothers, you know, their relationship with their wife, their wives is just an extension of their relationship with their mothers. Their mothers, their wives become extensions of their mothers. That relationship that they have with their mothers is, you know, continues on with the relationship with the wife. So what happens sometimes is that the mother doesn't want her son being married to this particular woman. So when she sees that they are having problems and the problems are inevitable, she sees that they're having problems in their marriage, she just sits back and says nothing. As a matter of fact, she may even encourage, give some innuendos to her, to her son that this woman is not for you. See, I told you you shouldn't even marry her. As if to say that having marital problems is, is a justification for not being married to someone. Everybody has marital problems. Marital problems are systemic across religious, financial, economic stability, and as well as cultural lines. It doesn't matter how economically stable you are. It doesn't matter how financially stable you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are. Doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are. Marital problems are inevitable. Marital problems are inevitable. How can I help you? Hmm? I'm showing you guys too much attention. How can I help you? So, Abu Bakr anhu, he felt inclined to intervene. This was his daughter raising her voice over her husband. And so he intervened. There was a sense of responsibility to intervene. It is this type of social and familial concern that can help to reduce the frustration that tends to overwhelm young couples when they don't have an outlet today. On one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ entered the house of his daughter, Fatima, and inquired as to where her husband was. And she replied, Kanabainana Shay, that we had an argument, and he left. So the Prophet ﷺ sent someone to go look for Ali, only to find him asleep in the masjid. Dirt from the afternoon sandstorm collected on the back of Ali, and when the Prophet ﷺ went to get him, he wiped the dirt off of his back, saying, Kum ya Aba Turab. Kum ya Abu Turab. Get up, oh Abu Turab. Get up. So you can see that the Prophet ﷺ intervened 
and the relationship between his daughter and her husband. So inshallah ta'ala, we'll pause here while they call the adhan inshallah ta'ala and then I'll take a couple of minutes uh, for questions and answers bi-idhnillah. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira wa kathira So if there were any questions or comments, inshallah, we'll take a couple of minutes. We have about 20 minutes before we call the Iqama. Inshallah ta'ala, I'll take a couple of minutes to uh, answer any questions related to the topic. Or I can just continue reading from um, that particular chapter. Okay, so we're talking about family and supporters who are friends of your marriage. Family and supporters who are friends of your marriage not only serve as a safety net for the couple in the event of marital discord, which oftentimes leads to divorce, but are also an incentive for the couple to work through their issues rather than run away from them. In our current climate of privilege and entitlement, many, including parents, siblings, and close friends of the couple are reluctant to help the couple when they are in crisis simply because they were not fond of the relationship from the beginning. In addition, there are elements of jealousy and envy that are prevalent amongst us that have led some to harbor ill feelings towards the newly married couples. Can you imagine a couple in our community who just got married and there are people in the Islamic community who hate their union, who hate the fact that they're married? Sometimes it could be your own siblings. Sometimes it could be your own parents. The fact that you made a choice, a conscious choice to find and share your happiness with this particular person or that person. You have people in the Islamic community that hate your union, hate the fact that you're married, whether monogamy or polygyny. And it's even worse in polygyny. People are so entitled that they feel so entitled to decide for you where you choose to find your happiness. A sister says, I'm marrying into polygyny, and then all hell breaks loose. You have the mom who is in her feelings, father who believes that his daughter is too good for that. You know, siblings and friends who feel like, you know, who are you to, why would you do that to yourself? You're dumb, you're stupid. How are you so entitled to decide for someone else where they choose to find their happiness or where they choose to share their happiness. It's a privilege. So there are elements of jealousy and envy prevalent amongst us that has led some to harbor ill feelings towards newly married couples. This jealousy manifests 
during some of the more challenging times in the couple's life. You know what people don't like your marriage? They don't say anything to you. They just wait until you get into a, a marital crisis with your spouse and then they sit back and they watch it crumble. They don't say anything to you from the beginning. It's like, uh, yeah, it's you know, good for you, right? It's like we were cool. And then when I brought this issue to you that I'm getting ready to marry this person or that person, then it's just like, uh, you know, you don't really answer the phone calls anymore. You don't really want to hang out. You start to act funny. It's like, why are you acting funny towards me? Because of this is my life. This is not your life. <laughs> this is my life. This is who I chose to marry, who I chose to share my happiness with. Why should that have an impact on somebody else's life? If your daughter wanted to marry a Christian in a church, would you give her blessings? That's a, that's a whole different discussion. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. That's, there's a lot of variables surrounding that. Primarily, if your daughter is a Muslim, then she is not allowed to marry. She is not allowed to marry a Christian. So I just blocked the person. Whatever. In just about every marriage, um, uh, this jealousy manifests during some of the more challenging times in the couple's life by withholding helpful advice with the hope that the marriage fails. So they have an opportunity to give you some advice to help you out, point you in the right direction, but they don't. They sit there, sacky tuned, they don't say anything because they actually want your marriage to fail. They want to see you fail. Right? So the jealousy manifests during some of the more challenging times of the couple's life by withholding helpful advice with the hope that the marriage fails. In some instances, it may even drive some to make dua against the marriage in hopes that it will crumble and end in divorce. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a Muslim making dua against another Muslim's marriage? And it happens. Trust me, it happens. People sitting back, raising their hands. Yeah, Allah, don't let that marriage continue. Don't let that marriage produce anything. Oh, Allah, don't let my daughter have any children with this person. Or don't let this happen. Or don't. SubhanAllah, how? How? Sabotaging the marriage by way of making dua against it. And just about every marriage, circle of friends or family members, there is always one or two individuals who cannot handle seeing someone go from being single to finding happiness within the institution of marriage. Always. In every circle of friends, family members, there's always one or two people that are so used to you being single that when you finally do get married, they can't handle it. They're so used to seeing you being single that now you're not single anymore. They can't handle it. This is especially true of siblings and best friends who watch in amazement as their counterpart goes from bachelorhood to married life while they themselves have never been married or were married previously and sit in the discomforts of their divorce. On the other hand, there are some who are so traumatized by past marital experiences that they become totally pessimistic about marriage altogether. They lost all hope in the possibility of finding someone 
uh, of someone a possibility of someone finding love and happiness in the institution of marriage that the mere mention of marriage ignites a sentiment of depression followed by a list of horrible examples that defends the belief that marriage is simply a waste of time and energy these sentiments are real and greatly contribute to the culture of divorce that permeates throughout many Muslim communities uh, and has many young children, young Muslim children, dismissing the idea of marriage altogether. You have many Muslim children right now who have absolutely no desire, no intention to get married whatsoever. Because they watch and they see these things play out in the Islamic community and they believe at this point that marriage is just a waste of time and energy. How do we get married in the Islamic community and you have Muslim brothers and sisters who are rooting for your divorce, championing the, you know, the, the destruction of your relationship simply because they feel that you married the wrong person. That's not a choice for you to make. That's not a choice for you to make. It's not for you to say that's not a good look. You can offer your advice all day long. I don't think that's a good idea. However, it's just your suggestion. It's their life. It's their choice. You don't have a right to feel so entitled that when a friend of yours or a brother or a sister marries someone, that now you and your feelings because they married this person. Or you don't, you know, you don't want to talk to your sibling. You don't want to speak to your sibling because you feel he or she made a horrible choice in marriage. Who are you? What type of entitlement? Like, do you feel that you have that you can dictate to somebody where they choose? Meanwhile, you're still single. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're not married at all. But yet, you're finding, finding issue and taking issue with who your sibling or who your best friend chose to, you know, share their happiness with. So, we are only as good as the environments that nurture us. Allah says in the Quran, and the healthy land, its vegetation merges by the permission of its Lord. While that which is unhealthy, nothing emerges except sparsely, with difficulty. Thus do we diversify the signs for people who are grateful. We are only as good as the environments that nurture us. So we are Muslims living in an Islamic environment wherein, you know, these things are going on, how can you expect to have healthy divorces, healthy marriages? So this helps to answer the question why divorce is so prevalent in our communities. We are our own worst enemy. We sabotage each other's, right? We sabotage each other's marriages and happiness. Families and friends play a huge role in keeping marriages together in our communities. And now uh, that many have lost hope in the institution of marriage, they behave as though they are entitled to dictate where others find and or share their happiness. We have become self a self-sabotaging community that will eventually produce an unbalanced generation of Muslim children who will unsuccessful, un unnecessarily grapple with the basics of human life while viewing Islam as the source of their dysfunction. This is what we're producing. We're producing Muslim children who are grappling with the basics of life. The basics of human interaction. Look at many of our children, Muslim children, who are socially awkward. 
grappling with, you know, basics of human interaction, right? While looking at Islam as the source of all of their problems. Children are half of our present and all of our future. And the culture of divorce that has unfortunately led to the displacement of many Muslim children from the homes of their biological parents. This dynamic has made our, uh, made them, the children, made them our greatest vulnerability in an environment where sexual, social, and religious choices are far too many to enumerate. There are so many choices out here. You have so many Muslim children who are queer, so many Muslim children who are homosexual, so, so many Muslim children who are identifying as lesbians, so many Muslim children who identify with all of these different, you know, concepts, these choices that they have out here in this society. You have so many Muslim children who are Muslim slash pan-Africanist slash, you know, this or that, whatever, you know, you know, culture or community they choose to identify with, using Islam as their foundation and their premise. Meanwhile, all of the concepts that they have adopted in actuality conflict with Islam. So don't say you're a Muslim feminist. Don't say you're a Muslim pan-Africanist. Don't say you're a Muslim this or that because that is, you are a walking contradiction. Islam usually does not coexist with a lot of these concepts because these concepts contradict the religion of Islam. Many of the precepts of Islam are contradicted by many of these approaches to life. So we continue to use, I'm Muslim, but I'm this. I'm Muslim, but I'm that. No, just identify with that. Just say that you're a feminist who just so happens to believe in some of the beliefs of Islam. But you are not a feminist Muslim. The terms are contradictory. The terms are contradictory. So, you know, we, we have to be aware of what we are doing to our children, man. So this dynamic has made many of our children, has made our children our greatest vulnerability in an environment where sexual, social, and religious choices are far too many to enumerate. Thus it is imperative that we identify the root causes of divorce in our communities in order to conquer them or counter them with practical solutions that are effective enough to keep families healthy and more importantly united. A group of the Prophet's companions came to him and said, We eat, but we don't seem to get full from our food. The Prophet ﷺ asked them, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَفْتَرِكُونَ Perhaps you eat separately. The Sahaba came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Oh Messenger of Allah, we eat, but we don't seem to get full. Perhaps we eat, but it doesn't seem like we're getting full from our food. So the Prophet ﷺ asked them, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَفْتَرِكُونَ Perhaps you eat separately, individually. So the companion said, yes, you're right. The Prophet said, Eat together. Eat together. And mention the name of Allah over your food. You barakallahu feekum and Allah will bless you. Showing you the, un the blessing that is in unification. And that if that applies to people who are sitting around a plate of food eating, then how much more would that apply to a family unit that chooses to stay together?
husband and wife and children, the family unit that tends to stay together. So if this is the case with respect to friends who eat together, then how much more important is it with respect to a family who lives, prays, and stays together? There's a quote that I mentioned at the end of this chapter, where there is unity, there's always victory. Any place you find people unified, you will always find some level of success amongst them. Whenever you find a people fragmented, separated, you will always find dysfunction. Guaranteed. Show me one society in America that is as individualistic as we are here as, uh, as Americans that are successful. We are individuals here in America and as a result of that, we are suffering for so many mental illnesses. Because of our individuality, this idea that I'm on my own, I don't need anybody, I'm going to do this all by myself. And although you might arrive at some level of success in life, you, are, you do that at the expense of what? Cutting everybody off? Having no connection or relationship to nobody? Absolutely. And then this is where, you know, the suicide, thoughts of suicide, you know, reckless behavior. It's like you're on top. You got the money. You reached the level that you wanted to reach. Why are you so miserable? Because you believe that you did it all by yourself and that you don't need anybody. And so therefore you have no safety net in terms of family and community. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. This is what I wanted to present. Don't forget to grab your copy of Blended Families, an Islamic Approach to uh, unconventional family structures inshallah ta'ala available now uh, for those of you who are in the Jersey area inshallah ta'ala I'll be in Montclair, New Jersey my hometown at 3pm at 3pm today inshallah ta'ala the address is on the flyer which is on my Facebook page as well as my Instagram page inshallah ta'ala so if you are in the North Jersey area and you have the ability to get up to Montclair to help this community Masjid al-Wadud to raise money for their uh, facility, they're looking for another facility or trying to move into another facility considering that where they are currently is not big enough for them, it's not an accommodating enough for them. If you have any money that you are willing to donate, inshallah ta'ala, please donate, please help this community. Um, some of us, we have, you know, $20, $25 just laying around. We're not doing anything with it. Spend it, Yisabidillah. Spend it in the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and help earn your place in Jannah. You contributed $50 to, you know, the construction of this facility and people come into that facility and pray. Look at the reward that you're getting. Every person that prays in that facility, you get portion of the reward for them. Wallahu ta'ala a'alam wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam wa taslimi kithira wa akhiru da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salamu alaykum. ورحمة الله وبركاته